in two weeks on Father's Day, that's still your last service, right? I don't want to give false information here. In two weeks on Father's Day, we're going to pray for their family because we knew coming in that they were going to be leaving. Um, but I'll talk about that. I, I'm forcing myself not to talk about them leaving this morning because I want him. I want us to focus on the word that he has. And so, um, so I really wanted our, us to hear his voice again. And so he's done deeper waters Wednesday night. But I wanted him to preach a Sunday morning service. Uh, I'm not pre. I'm, he's not coming up here because we're giving him a token. Uh, pulpit time before he heads to the next place. This is an ordained minister of the United Pentecostal Church International. He is a seasoned veteran minister. He has ministered all over as an army chaplain. He has ministered all over the entire world to groups of men and women. He has ministered not only in pulpit settings in churches, but on battlefields and in barracks and in various places. And so I know that this man is going to bring a word that God has given him directly for this church. And so if you've known Brother Ruiz, you know he is a man of integrity, character, uh, and he is a man of God. And so I just wonder if you would help me and stand to your feet in welcoming one of our own, at least for the next few weeks, to the pulpit. Brother Ruiz, take your liberty. Let's go ahead and give that unto the Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. Thank you, God. Oh, you are worthy, Lord, of all the praise. Praise is what we do, Lord, and we do it unto you because you are worthy of every single ounce of praise that comes out of this place. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Pastor Dornbach. Uh, I give glory to God for the honor and the trust that a pastor and sister Dorbeck have once again given me um, in this very sacred place. Um, I, I don't take the, uh, the pulpit lightly ever. Uh, and as a lot of you uh, witness, and I have been here almost a year now, there is a high standard of ministry that takes place from this place. And, uh, it, and it flows from here on Sundays uh, it, through the preaching to the teaching uh, declaring God's word, and it's not uh, because of the nice lighting or the contemporary pulpit, but it's because of the anointing that God has placed in the men of God in this place. Amen? And so, um, you guys are spoiled. <laughs> Let me tell you. Amen. Yes. You give God the glory for that. Because the... Not, not so much fortunate, sometimes unfortunate uh, experience of being a, uh, a military chaplain is that you get to visit a lot of churches, and you get to hear a lot of preachers, and you get to feel a lot of spirits, and I'm telling you, you are missing nothing with what God has given you here in this place in Liberty, Missouri. Amen. You, you are in the will of God. When, the, when God comes here every week and delivers his message for you directly. So I thank God for the opportunity. Um, my, more than my own prayers, I also trust the prayers of, of the saints, you, uh, the church, that ought to cover the pulpit, ought to cover the Bible study teachers, the Sunday school rooms downstairs every week so that God can show up every single time. Amen. All right, so I have, I have more than 20 minutes. Praise the Lord. You know, that's been good practice for me because I'm getting ready to go back to in my next assignment where 20 minutes is an hour. 
for, for a lot of these soldiers. I'm preaching to some, some young 19, 21-year-olds who have ADD and can't, can't pay attention to anything. And so it's been good practice. Thank you, Brother Foster. And who knows, maybe after I'm done today, he, I may get that email that says, you know, Brother Reese, you did such a good job. You need to take some time off uh, and not teach deeper waters again. So, Lord, help us. Amen. So, I come to you with a, with a word that I pray will confirm um, the, in our hearts. It will be confirmed in our hearts with a blessing, um, encouragement, I, th- I believe revelation, obedience, and a determination uh, towards that great commission that God has given us. I, pr- I pray that when we leave here today, that, uh, and I believe that God's desire is that we will have a new forward thinking in our walk with God. So if you're, if you're already standing, if you will open your Bibles, we're going to go to a chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read verse 1. Then we're going to jump over to uh, chapter 12 and read it uh, beginning at verse uh, 13. And then our last verse that we will read is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. And if you have your Bibles, good on you. If you don't, that's what we have a screen here. We got you covered. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 says this. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war. Normally go out to war. David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. When kings normally went out to war. David stayed behind. I learned something very important this year in a, in a command general staff college. I've heard it so many times. And, in, and when I read this, it, it reminded me of that statement again. You can delegate authority, but you can never delegate your responsibility. God has given all of us in this place some authority. And a lot of us are trying to delegate that authority to somebody else. And that, guess what? That authority comes with some responsibility that only you are going to one day before God account for. This morning, my brothers and sisters, I, I want to talk to you about this, this, this battle that's taking place. It, it has been going on since, since the moment you were born. There's a conflict that, that has been operating and it continues to operate. It is a fight for your future. It is a fight for your very soul. It is a fight that will not bring about a stalemate. You can't find a peace treaty. You cannot release yourself from this war that you are part of from the moment you were born. You are in this fight. No pedigree, no amount of education, no amount of generational prayers by your parents or grandparents will get you out of this fight unless you yourself are in the fight. You have to be part of this fight. Because the enemy, the adversary, is doing its very best. He's fighting you. And he's doing everything to discourage you, to deflate you, to destroy your future and your potential to, to receive what God has in store for your life. And so why, why do I pause in, in between scriptures? I pause to say this very important thing is that in verse 1 we are reading about someone who be, is beginning to take the steps that complacency has brought to him, and it's about to get him into a lot of trouble. 
And that is he disengaged himself for a fight he should be part of. Amen? So let, let us get back to, to the text. And it says, and David stayed behind. Now, for those of us who, who know the story that I'm reading about, you know that stuff happens after this verse to King David. And we're going to jump to a, a 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 13. All this stuff that, that you, you've, a, lot, a lot of you are familiar with has happened uh, since, re, since verse 1. And, and things are coming to a head for David. It's been about a year now uh, since he decided to stay home during, during the battle. And here we're about to read uh, a snapshot after David has just had a conversation with a man named Nathan, a prophet of God, who just confronted him about the stuff. He just read David the mail about him. So there in verse 13 and chapter 12 says, And David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The prophet replies and says, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and, won't, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing would he do when the child is dead? When David saw that the whispering, there was whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. The child is dead. It's a lot of death that I'm reading about here. And bear with me. Then David got up from the ground. He washed himself. Another verse says he anointed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. And he went to the tabernacle or the house of the Lord in worship. Finally, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. And it says here, a bastard child, somebody say illegitimate, should not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that these next few moments that you will be with us. God, that you will open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to receive what you have for us today. I am praying right now that you will remove every distraction from this building. Everybody watching online, God, I pray that you will let their focus be intent. God, that they will, that they will receive from you, God, a life-changing, God, voice. God, that they will receive from you a new, God, renew determination to live for you, Lord. Looking forward, God. I pray all these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I began pretty emphatic about the fight that you are, you're in, that we are all part of. And uh, how the adversary is, is fighting you. And, and perhaps uh, with some, he has been pretty successful. Uh, and with some, probably very frustrated. And good on you if you've been frustrating the enemy. But, but, but for some, he still has found a way to pester you. He, he has found a way to harass you and condemn you uh, with the person you used to be. There, there, he, he is the best at reminding you of who you used to be and what you have done before. He, he is good at that rearview mirror uh, uh, to always be nice and clean for you to look at every now and then. He, he, he's, he's determined. See, the enemy has a campaign plan. 
His campaign plan is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. His efforts include doing everything that he can to remind you of your past. Your past wants you back. Your past, literally, it, it wants you back. It misses you. And, and the enemy wants you to somehow reconnect with your past again. And so here, my friends, I, I'm here to remind you today that because your, your past wants you back, we need to be even more determined. We need to embrace what God has done for us. Right? Because this Sunday, I believe that God is wanting to encourage some of us. He wants to remind many of us that, that today's message your past is dead. Amen? Now, some of us are still living in the past, so you don't really understand what that means. But your past is dead. Now, say it with me. My past is dead. No matter where you have come from, no, no matter what the enemy has brought you or dragged you through, regardless of the scars that, and bruises that you sit here this day in these pews, if you are sitting here today, it's not because your past person dragged you here. It's not because the enemy had a plan for you to come to church today. It is because there is a God who wants you to somehow get a hold of a future. It is a God who wants to establish your future on a path to eternity. Because your past is dead. And if you have been born again, if you are a Christian who has been washed by the blood of the Lamb through repentance, through water baptism in that precious name of Jesus, if you have been filled with the Spirit of God, truly, truly I say to you, your past is dead. And for that, you ought to be celebrating. And there it is. Because some of us are celebrating. Some of us understand what that means, that your past is dead. And so now you kind of confirm that this message is necessary today. Because some of us are still a little bit trapped with the past. Some of us are still having a hard time walking forward because of your past. And I get it. I get it. There's a testimony. There's a testimony uh, today by reflecting on what God has brought you from. There's a testimony into when you look at what God has delivered you from. I too pause with wonder of how God's grace could have ever taken this wretched person from the man that he used to be to the path and in, in, in future that I now have in his word in him. But the problem is that too many of us are in love with throwback Thursday. Or flashback Fridays. You know, social media has been a downfall for many who dwell in the past with nostalgia. You know, the good old days. And, and, and even if you don't, even if you don't intentionally go back and dig into some old pictures and, and, and post them so you can show the world that there was a time when you didn't have wrinkles. And that there was a time when you had a lot more hair, where gravity didn't get a hold of you. The way it does today. Even if you don't do that, Facebook's going to remind you because there's, some, there, there, there's part of Facebook that will pop some stuff that you did a year ago. Or two years ago. Or ten years ago. And I thank God that my Facebook account started after Christ. Amen. Because my past is dead. Hallelujah. Romans said, 1 and 2 says that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit 
of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and from death. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Passed away. They are dead. They are no longer leading you into your future. Behold, all things have become new. John 12 and 24 says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it, can, it remains alone. But my friends, hear me. Death is a way to new life. We are buried with him by baptism, Romans 6 and 4, unto death. Death. Your past is death. You must have, you must leave it dead. But in order for you to leave your past dead, you must, you must kill it. You, you must face your future with a decision, with, with a tear-down attitude. You, you must be determined. You must be forceful about your new future forward walk with the Lord. Because sin, the world, and the enemy of your soul is relentlessly is reminding you of who you used to be. You must make a crushing decision about sin. To remove that thing, you must, you, you must be determined to kill it, to slay it. Because it will keep you from the congregation of the righteous. It will keep you from heaven if you keep it alive. Some of us resurrect our old paths, our old sins, our old men more than we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. But to be assured of our salvation, as Peter calls it, it requires that you forsake all the old men, the person of sin, the scripture says. It requires that you put away all things. Uh, I remember uh, somebody reading about, somebody talking about comparing sin as deceitful. Right? Um, some of you have, well, we, everybody knows what an apostle is, right? Those beautiful creatures that scurry at night. They do all their evil stuff at night. Ugly things. Who would ever want one as a pet? I don't know. But this animal, this predator, it uses a, a self, a defense mechanism that is very unique. Very few animals use it. It plays dead. And somebody said that sin is deceitful, that it plays dead too. The apostle, when it's faced with threat, it, 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 will, it will fall to the ground. It will extend its limb, close its eyes, and open its mouth and pretend to be dead. Right? Some must have seen them on the side of the road. Hopefully those are really dead. But it plays dead. Right? I, I, that wouldn't be a good plan to play dead when a car is coming at you anyways. You'll stay dead. But when the danger passes, what, what does this possum do? Right? Maybe opens up one eye. Okay. Everything seems safe. You know, it begins to twitch itself back alive. And it just walks away. And begins its normal thing. Maybe even giggling. At the fact that, whew. well, that's not the only animal that uses that mechanism, that deceitful mechanism. We, our flesh, can sometimes conspire with our sin to let it play dead too. Especially when faced with a threat of execution. Uh, faking death in order to avoid real death. And, and, and while a deception has taken place in our lives uh, that says, hey, you, you know, you put away some particular sin, uh, you, you probably what really have done is you just kind of put it aside. Because sometimes a lot of us confuse with repentance with just putting some things aside because you no longer want to mess with them. But you haven't truly killed or got rid of what's in your heart. 
It's one thing to, oh, well, you know, I, I, I don't go to the, I don't do this anymore. But you have to pick something else up. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't do drugs like I used to, but you are on a verbal abuser like nobody else. You know, you've traded some things. I, I don't, I, I don't I, you know what, I don't hang out with certain people, but, but your pride still eliminates wherever you go. And you deceive yourself that your sinful nature, your sin is dead. God is very explicit that death must take place on our way to deliverance. That sacrifice that Brother Foster was talking about, there is a death that's taking place. As part of our conversion, our transformation. Sanctification is a process that purges those things that cause death to our soul. David. Right? You're wondering, when is he going to get back to David? I love reading about David. A lot of us like reading about David. Churches love doing series about David. The corporate world studies David for their leadership lessons. I remember our, our home church back in the West Coast. We went through a quarterly series of the life of David. Facing your giants, I think is what we call it. And, and, and we, we study the life of David and, and because we can see ourselves in David. His, his struggles, his challenges, certainly his victories, and it just inspires you. And, you know, this last week, just this last week at uh, Command and Staff General College, uh, there was a major, an Air Force major, giving a Bible study on David. He didn't know it was a Bible study. But he, he was doing a leadership brief on David and the life of David and how he, he got lazy and, and, and it's... It, People love reading about David. And we focus about the victories. And how he overcame adversity. And, you know, how he defeated Goliath, the giant, and the bear, and the lion. And, and, and you know, and so I'm, I, here I am reading a scripture about David's part of life that, you know, frankly, is just probably one of the most disappointing uh, of David's life or accounts. But it's so significant and important. Because the outcome would, if the outcome would have been different, we would, have, we would have been reading about David in the likes of King Saul. Based on what takes place here. Based on how he reacts to that confrontation to the prophet. So we read and we know everything about King David and his experiences. A God, you know, he, he was a man after God's own heart. One time I was reading and, and I started thinking, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, to me, what my definition of what being uh, a man after God's own heart is that God was attracted to David because of something in him wanted to have a deeper understanding and relationship with God. He was humble enough to realize his fault that he knew that the only way that he could be a better person was to get God back on his life and his side. He was anointed three times, the Bible says. I think four since we read about him getting anointed again, anointing himself. But he, 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 he was declared the future king of Israel by a prophet. And yes, he has some circumstances and some trials to go through before that actually happened. A lot of time happened before he actually sat on that throne. How many of us would have given up pursuing God's promise if we had to go through what David had to go through? Sitting in a cave. It's been a while now. I'm supposed to be the king of Israel. He's sitting in a cave hiding. Fighting for his death or for his life. Right? Some of us are just one crisis away from walking away from God. And here David's going through a whole bunch of stuff and sticking to it. Why? Because David believed in his destiny more than he leaving his present troubles. David had an understanding that his destiny was brighter than the darkness of, his, of, his, of everything he was going through. 
Imagine how, how would you live life, how much better, how much victorious of a life you'd be living if you can live with, with, with the mentality that your destiny or what the promises that God has given you, it, it, it's a lot, a lot brighter, it's a lot more worth fighting for than the circumstances and the disappointments that people around you have brought you, than everything you're going through. We got to believe like David that our destiny means more than our present circumstance. And this was David. That's what we loved about David. So like I said already, he, you know, about his youth, we don't know much. The bear, the lion. Right? He, he was a good musician. Or at least played the heart real well. That, that's all we know. But later in his life now, the Bible says the King David, you know, he's now the king. He's, he's in the throne. He's having some victories. Uh, and, and he relaxes a little. We read about, uh, we begin to read about how he decided to stay back. He turns down the dial in his intensity in his walk with God. And somehow maybe he reached a point of complacency that victory and success are brought to him that, that, that he started to miss the mark. You know, in the corporate world, even socialist psychologists, uh, they, they, they study this, this part of, of David's life, this point. And, and they examine and, and, and they talk about the dangers of success and how you begin to lose discipline. Because of what success has brought you. And, and success without accountability will open doors to more trouble. You know, when you're successful, you have access to things that you didn't before. And you think you can control the outcome of things. And so all of that is it, the perfect recipe for, for trouble if you don't maintain your discipline and your devotion. How did it start for David? Well, his discipline life perhaps, his prayer life, his fasting began to take a backseat to more important things. I got something more fun to do. I've been invited to do something else. You know, I had a great prayer meeting last year. I, I, I still feel the, the, you know, I still feel that uh, what happened back then. I think I'm good with that. So this complacency led David to take a break or take it easy in his walk. And, and he began to disconnect from a relationship that presented to him accountability. The accountability that he needed. That conviction. I pray God for conviction. I thank God for conviction. It is conviction that makes me look away or turn around or stop having some conversations that I shouldn't have. But David is disconnecting himself from that kind of accountability. So when David should have gone out to battle with Israel, he decides to stay back. And like I said earlier, you, you, you cannot win a fight that you're not part of the fight. If you want to win a fight, you got to be in there and start fighting. You can't be, no one's going to fight for you. There's only one way out of a fight, and that's by you giving up. Surrendering or switching sides. And the enemy wants you to switch sides. And so David, he turns down the, the dial. His devotion, maybe his prayer times. Maybe when, when, he, when he should have taken the time on his drive to work, he decides to put on some better music because it's just more fun and upbeat. Instead of just maybe turning it off and just talking to God on that drive. God, you know, where you've been, what, what have I been, and just begin to talk to God. Maybe you should have good intentions, but good intentions don't get you into the presence of God. Amen. And so here is David, disengaged. And the Bible says to put on the full armor of God. He stopped fighting. He put his armor down. Complacency. See, the enemy loves it when we get real complacent. The enemy loves when we get so comfortable with our own abilities and we, and we put God's abilities aside to augment what we can't do. 
When we feel so secure in our own humanity that, that, we, that uh, temptation can't, it can't touch me according to our own deception. The pressures of the world, they, oh, no, 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 that, that, that won't bother me. We deceive ourselves. When we begin to rely on our own strength and our own wits, and that's when the enemy says, I got you right where I want you. I got you right where I want you. You've put down your guards. See, you know, the enemy, the adversary, the devil, he's been around for a while. He, he, he is the envy of every psychologist and psychiatrist in this world. Because he knows you. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what, will, what draws your attention. He knows every little thing that attracts you to something. And when we put our guards down, he, he, he's got a way in. And one way it happens is it's that, that thing now that you thought was dead, that you deceived yourself because it's actually playing dead, begins to be triggered by some things. And the devil knows how to do that. The enemy knows how to trigger, how to bring back that scurry little ugly animal into your life that was playing dead for a while. And, be, and some things begin to happen as you, you live life now a little bit more relaxed in your relationship with God. And before you know it, you find yourself entertaining some things you shouldn't. Talking about some things you don't normally talk about. Opening some emails or, or maybe you get a friend request from somebody or something that, that, that begins to connect you with something in your past. A picture pops up that reminds you of something about you back then. Or triggers something about you and who you used to be. A song comes up that reminds you of the good old days. And things begin to brew. And now you're in a different, a different path in your walk. Because your past wants you back. Proverbs 24 and 23 says, above all else, guard your heart. Do not give the devil a foothold. Don't relax in your walk with God. King David, he was out early one evening, the story says. For those of you who are familiar, he was taking a break from battle. Maybe he was bored. Perhaps he, needed a, he had a long day dealing with people, and he just needed to take a break. And so then the late afternoon comes, and, and what perhaps should have been an innocent, neutral, relaxing time with no ill intentions. He's walking in the flesh now. So every intention coming out of the flesh will have something that's in, against the Lord. Right? The Bible says that everything in us is enmity against God. So he, 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 he is... Relaxing, he thought. And he goes into his room. And he's going to take a break. But David had a problem. We don't know much about his youth, but I know that he was a man and he was flesh. Right? He was, there was something in him that was going to lust after something. Pinch yourself. That arm, that, that thing that, you, that you're about to pinch, that is flesh. It will lust after something. Unless you subject yourself to something that will get you out of trouble. And that's the word of God. So I believe that David, David did have a problem. Something was triggered. And how? Well, there he is. He's alone. He's in a room by himself. He's taking a break. And, 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 and there's the remote control. And there's this big giant screen called the, uh, the balcony of where he lives. And he begins to flip the channel. I just, you know, I, I don't have to step it. So I, I'll just, I can control my thumb. I know how to flip over something that I shouldn't be looking at. Nobody's around. 
He's flipping through the channels. But the king struggled with something. Maybe it was boundaries. I don't know what it was. But he had a problem. I believe it was lust, like everybody who does not control themselves. And so here he is. He's flipping through the channels, and something captures his eye. Something triggers within him that maybe connects to something he had a trouble with in the past. And he puts the remote control down, stops changing the channels. And he looks, and he sees a woman, a woman named Bathsheba. Looks, still relaxing, and he keeps, he keeps watching. So he puts the remote control and decides to watch HBO, her bathing outside. But watching wasn't enough. Right? This innocent glaze leads to more. Maybe a friendly conversation. Who is that? I need to know more. That leads to more. An appropriate meeting. That leads to more. In David's case, a full-blown case of adultery and betrayal. And a baby is conceived. We know the story. The whirlwind of sin gets a hold of David. That leads to murder. He brings other people into his mess. Death takes place. Sin is now fully operational in his life. I can't tell you with stronger words that when you disconnect with something, you're going to connect to something else. When you disconnect yourself from God, something is waiting to connect with you. We're going to worship something as as we heard about a couple weeks ago. Your, you, your, your flesh, your body, something about you needs to be connected to something. When you begin to disconnect from God, that something is waiting to get a hold of you and connect with you. You must fight for, you this, for yourself. You must fight for your soul. So David sins. And the story goes on to say that uh, he, he tried doing business as usual. Right? We, from what we read in chapter 1 through the, in the next verses, a year has gone by. That David is doing business as normal with all this stuff that he had just done. And, and sin, because sin is controlling him now. He, he, he invokes, he, he brings in a general to, to do his dirty work. And, and he's trying to do church with this sin that only happened once. And it's dead. At least he thinks it is. It's just sitting there. And another character comes into the story. You know the story, the name, the man named Jariah. He was a good, faithful soldier, a mighty warrior, if you read about Jariah. Because that is Bathsheba's husband, and David's trying to cover up the mess he got himself into. And Jariah enters saying, Jariah, who, who, Jariah in the story highlights what integrity is all about. Jariah highlights what loyalty and obedience is all about. And if anything, Jariah should have been there to, to remind maybe David of what he should be doing right. But that doesn't happen. David sends Jariah uh, with a note to the general uh, to put Jariah to the front lines and just pretty much order him to his death. I imagine what that general was thinking. First, I I can imagine what the general was thinking when he called Jariah out of the battle to come give him a situation report. In in, in the army, we don't send the best fighters to go talk to 
to the boss about what's going on in the front lines. We, 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 we send the guys who are not fighting. But David asked for the best fighter who's out there winning the war to come talk to him. And, and the general had to kind of get suspicious at that point. Right? We know the story, what Uriah does. He comes, he comes and, and, and David's trying to get Uriah to reconnect with his wife somehow, but he's not doing it. And, and everybody in the temple is, is, is watching this. So I have a feeling that everybody back in the front line knows what's going on. But David does what he does. Uriah dies, Bathsheba mourns, and David goes and takes Bathsheba as his wife right away. <sighs> Under the carpet. Done. Fixed. God, I'm, I, forgive me. I don't want to do it again. And I don't think he said forgive me. Because David was still living an unrepentant life until Nathan gets a hold of him. So Bathsheba mourns, and David rushes to her side. And initially, David thought that he probably got away with it. More time goes by, and he's thinking, okay, so far so good. And, and, and so he still hasn't dealt with that sin, though. It's just plain dead. A whole year unrepentant. And I can imagine David every day in his interaction with Bathsheba as, as maybe she, rem- she remembers her, her, her husband, you know, her late husband. What, what kind of feelings did that bring to David? The child is born and he sees the child and he knows he doesn't see his face on the child really as much because he, 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 he's just, he sees guilt. I'm hoping he sees some guilt. But it, I, what, what, what life is he living that whole year unrepentant? Seeing the child all, every day. I'm reminded of what he did that late afternoon when he took a break. Sin didn't just happen that afternoon. He didn't just fall into adultery. Something in him was right there ready to be triggered. See, you, you, you don't just become an alcoholic. Something at some point begins to let you gaze and begin to entertain. Everything starts with one open door in your life. The key is for us to stop it at the very beginning. To develop a battle rhythm. In the military, we call this a battle rhythm. A battle rhythm is a calendar of your everyday things, what you do. And in that battle rhythm, it it has to include your time, your devotion with God. Because your time and devotion with God for the rest of the day will will prepare you to to be able to overcome some things. To be able to live a life, to be reminded that I am a child of God. And I, I don't do the things that the world does. And here's David. He found himself. But judgment and truth is about to reach David and knock on his front door. And we read about Nathan who comes and, and, and talks to, to the king about a story. He tells him the story about, it, about a rich uh, man who owned a lot of cattle. And he's, he's going to host uh, somebody who's coming over. And he wants to uh, cook him a nice good meal. And, and, and there's his, his neighbor who's a poor guy who only has one little tiny lamb that he possesses. And the rich man says, instead of going into his vast number of cattle to prepare a meal, he goes and takes the poor man's one single lamb to cook. And that's the story in so many words that Nathan tells the king. And in Scripture says the king was angry. David was burning with, with, with righteous indignation. Kill the man, he says. And Nathan's about to respond. Now, I like to think about Nathan's day that morning when he woke up. And he had that dream, or maybe the Lord spoke to him that morning as he's eating breakfast. And tells, and tells Nathan everything about David. Because the scripture says that Nathan did tell David everything he had done. And then he tells, okay, Nathan, now I want you to go and, go and tell this guy that what he's doing is wrong. And Nathan knows that this guy has killed to keep that 
under wraps. He's got to go tell the king that he's wrong, that he has sinned. And I can imagine Nathan, he, he's, he's obeying the Lord. He's getting his house ready. He's, he's about to leave. His, in his mind, probably, he's about to leave home for the very last time. I don't know that I'm coming back from this. I'm about to go confront somebody who's willing to kill and has killed. Not just Uriah, but many people died in that process of covering up his sin. But he obeys. There's something about truth speaking to power. When, when it's under the obedience of God. God is going to protect you. Don't ever be afraid to speak truth to power. And so here's Nathan. He tells a story and David responds, kill the man. And Nathan comes down and says, guess what? You're that man. You're the man. And, and I can imagine David as he begins to sweat. I don't know. His eyes get dilated. His heart skips a beat. Maybe he takes this big, long, dry swallow. And how does he react? He could, he could have reacted like many normal, fleshly, carnal people do. He could have fired back. He certainly could have called the, the guards from the back door and make sure that this guy doesn't leave out the same door he came in. He could have accused somebody else. He could have made up some excuse. Well, you know, I was raised by parents that were just not nice to me. You know, and you just don't know how hard I had it. And, and, you know, it's just all this trauma in my life. And, and he, oh, he could have just found a group of people who agree with what he did. Everybody can do that. Anybody. You go, go and Google something. You're going to find a group of people who are, are part of that, that thought. Proverbs 11:21 says that even though you find someone who agrees with you, judgment comes to you and you individually. You alone. But David responds in a way that he, that maybe even he himself had not contemplated. Or nobody, if you read the story. He says, I have sinned. He, he you know, and I can almost maybe sense a, 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 some relief in him. <sighs> Finally, this weight, this, this, this thing that he's been hiding. He responds and says, I have sinned. A whole year carrying this. But Nathan says, yes, you have sin and God has forgiven you. But sin still has to have a consequence. And he tells him that the child that you conceived the, 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 uh, from the wife of Uriah. God always kept poking David to remind him who, who Bathsheba was. The wife of Uriah. That child will die. And David begins to fight. He begins to struggle. Because he wanted to hold on to that part of his past. He wanted to hold on to the child. He begins to plead his life for the child. He goes on a hunger strike. I don't call it a fast. Because he was out of the will of God. He's trying to coerce God to see it his way. You can go, you can go on a fast for spiritual righteous right reasons. Or you can go on a hunger strike and just be hungry. If you're on a hunger strike for something that's not the will of God. And so David goes on this hunger strike, and, and he, he locks himself into a prayer room, and he's fighting, God, no, let the child live. Don't, don't let this part of my past go away. Please keep this part of my past. You know, my friends, God is faithful. He is just to forgive us. But at some point, we need to deliver ourselves from ourselves. Amen? And we, we can fight all we want for some of the things we want to hold on to. And at some point, God is going to say, you know what, if you just don't want to change, then I might just leave you to yourself. Romans 1 and 20, it says that he will eventually let you lose to your own destruction. 
That is the worst death sentence you could ever receive is for God to say, okay, Carlos, you take care of yourself in every way. I know what's inside Carlos. I know the potential for Carlos. I need God. I need God every single day. But David is struggling. He's struggling to let go of his past. And God begins to deal with him. David is locked in a room, in a prayer room. And in his flesh, he's fighting to accept the will of God. But, but he's spending so much time saying, God, not this part of my past. Let us stay. Our relationship with God must be so transparent that God needs to tell us when something needs to go away. We must have a relationship with God so transparent that we have people that, are, that we're accountable to in our lives on, in, in a spiritual sense. We, we must be open to when the pastor says something and it, doesn't, it just doesn't rub you right, that maybe God is telling you you shouldn't do what you're doing. Maybe we should change some things about us when you're hearing it from, 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 from the pulpit, from people who love you, who are godly people. You want to know if you're in the will of God, you talk to people who love God and who love you. You want to know if you're not in the will of God, talk to anybody else who's not in church. They'll agree with you. They'll root for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah keep doing it. A lot of people is doing that. The child dies. Why, Lord? And David's struggling. Why? God, please keep this part. Please, please don't let this part of this, the, the past, this part of my past go away. See, God's righteousness is not going to let you hold on to some unholy things. We can't serve him and hold on to some things that are not of him. So David's past has a strong grip around his neck and, and this mess fine and, and that he finds himself in it dangerous. He's not realizing where he stands right now. Now listen carefully and thank you. And you, you've been more than good kind of letting me get to the point. But this is the part, that part, and I promise, the, the part of the message that God wants us to hear this morning. What David was not realizing during the process, this fight that he found himself with now with God. It was so eternal and critical that he did not know where he found himself in that prayer room. David was debating and fighting with God for the child, for his past to remain. In the spiritual, David was standing on the precipice of eternity. What do you mean by that, Brother Reese? Judah, the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. David's great, 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 great to the tenth power father. Judah, who, who's, in whose line will bring forth the promise and come in Messiah. Back in Genesis 38, Judah also took a break, a deviation. He committed some sin. Lust and rebellion was all wrapped around Judah. And the Bible says that he, he strayed. The scripture says that he departed from his brothers and went down. Reminds me of Jonah. He didn't want to follow the will of God, so he got on the boat and went down. It's only one way to go when you don't want to follow God's path. Down. Psalms 133, 1 says that it is good and pleasant for brethren to dwell together. Don't separate yourself from the brethren. Don't separate yourself of the place where God wants you. And Judah separates himself. And the Bible says that Judah joined an adulterous world there. He marries a woman, in, in, uh, a Canaanite. Uh, the daughter of a man named Shua. Shua, uh, the translation means prosperity. That's a whole different sermon. He connects himself. The Bible says that his sons were bad dudes. Wicked. 
so bad, God kills them. Imagine, you're so wicked that God just doesn't want you around. So his oldest son, wicked number one, marries Tamar, right? And this is Judah's uh, daughter-in-law, and a lot of us know this story of Tamar. But God kills Tamar's husband because he's so wicked. And now Tamar finds herself a widow, and in those days, being a widow was pretty much a life sentence, right? Because you need something, someone to take care of you. And, and Judah has a responsibility to give, to give Tamar now his other son. And, and, he, and, and Judah tells his other son, hey, take Tamar as your, as your wife so that she can receive from the seed that is due to her as an inheritance. But the second son of Judah is also wicked, evil, disgusting guy. Because the scripture says that he just used it for pleasure, but refused to do what he was supposed to do as a husband for her. And God kills him too. Snuffs him out. And now there's another son. And now Judah's having second thoughts. Because Tamar is waiting for Judah to do the right thing. And so Judah kind of preempts and says, hey, you know, Tamar, why don't you stay a widow for a while? Go back to your father's house and stay a widow for a while. And when my son gets old enough, then I'll go ahead and do what I'm supposed to do. But the scripture says that in the back of his mind, Judah said, but what if my son dies too? Because he's starting to think maybe the sons are dying because of her. He dishonors Tamar. He doesn't fulfill what he's supposed to do according to the law in those days. So Tamar goes back. Time goes by. The son, the younger son, is now old enough. But somebody tells uh, Tamar that Judah's about to take a road trip. Judah just lost his wife. You know, he's kind of lonely. He's, he's disconnected. He's trying to connect with something. And he's taking a business trip, and Tamar figures out where he's going to be. So she decides to take off her widow uh, dress that she normally puts on and dresses like a lady of the night, to put it in better words, right? And sets up, she strategically places herself in the path of Judah. And Judah looks, and he doesn't know that it's Tamar, and looks at her and says, hey, well, you know, let's do some business, right? And, and, and the conversation goes on where uh, Tamar says, well, you know, what do you have? And, and I don't take Visa or American Express, but what is it that you have? And, and Judah's like, well, you know, I left my wallet back in the, in, in the closet. And she's, so they make a deal. And, and, and Judah gives up his, his, his staff and his ring. You know, it's identity and authority for a very, very small uh, moment of pleasure. Right? And Judah leaves. He says, hey, I'll send a goat to get my stuff back from you to pay you. And as soon as he leaves, Tamar leaves. And Judah goes and sends a servant to retrieve his staff and his ring. And, and the servant comes back and tells Judah, hey, she's not there anymore. She hasn't been there in a long time. And scripture says that in so many words, Judah was embarrassed and said, okay, let's just keep this under wrap, you know, whatever. She's, at least we tried. But then the scripture says that about three months later, somebody outs Tamar and goes and tells Judah, hey, your daughter-in-law who's not married, who doesn't have a husband, she's three months, she's pregnant, about three months. And then the righteous indignation comes up again of Judah. You know, it's funny that how people who fail morally are the first ones to quake harshly on other people. So the righteous indignation comes out of Judah and says, bring her here. We got to burn her. Tamar 
Man, she, she's so smart. Tamar knows what's getting ready to happen, so she sends, she sends a message to, to Judah with the ring and the staff. And says, you know, tell, tell Judah that whoever owns these two things, the possessor of these two things, is actually the father of the child or children that are in me. And it's, in, it's at that split moment that Judah gets a revelation, I guess, and says, oh, she's more righteous than I am. He realizes that he has dishonor her. He gets the you're the man moment also. So Tamar is pregnant with twins. And the law says in Deuteronomy 23 that an illegitimate child cannot enter into the congregation of the righteous. Unto his tenth generation shall he not enter unto the congregation of the righteous. And as you begin to count down from Judah and uh, Perez, Hezron, Ram, all the way down, Jesse is, the, is now the tenth generation. David finds himself where? He is right at the door of the, of the congregation of the righteous and he, that he can now enter. But what is David doing? He is fighting a battle right now that is about to close that door for him. His access that stands before him is being threatened by his choice to want to keep his past. He struggles to let go of his past. And he's pleading with God. He's on his knees, I have no doubt. And he's, he's crying for the child to stay alive. Oh, God, let me keep this path. And, and maybe he sees the scrolls and goes and gets the scrolls. And he wants to read the Bible like a lot of us maybe have done, going to the Bible to find the little scape clouds or the fine print that lets us get away with something we just did. Oh, grace. Let's find all the scriptures on grace because God is grace. He's merciful. And maybe he's looking through the scrolls for something that helps him in this dilemma that he finds himself in. He wants to hold on to his past. And I believe that he runs into Deuteronomy 20 that we just read. And his eyes are full of tears. And maybe he looks at it and he reads it. And, and, he, and he's like, oh, what does this say? And, and God, keep the child. And a legitimate child. And 10th generation. And maybe he just reads that. And, and maybe he be, he's still pleading for his past to remain. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And I believe as David searches through the scriptures and he runs through Deuteronomy 23, this happens, something happens in his mind that begins to make sense. And he's praying, illegitimate, God, keep the, keep the child. Don't let, don't let the past go by. The congregation of the righteous, what, what does that mean that you, you cannot enter? And, he, and he's beginning to connect the dots. And I believe that right at that moment, he begins to hear the men whisper outside of his door, hey, the child's dead. You go tell him. I ain't telling him. He's crazy. He hasn't eaten. He won't listen to anybody. What, what is he going to do if we tell him that the child is dead? And so he hears the men. And David's about to connect all the dots. He's about to finally get it. He's about to put his past to death once and for all. Amen. If no musicians can come. So David hears a man, God, keep the, keep the child. He's connecting the dots, and he hears that the child is dead. He pokes his head on and says, is the child dead? And they say, yes, the child is dead. And finally, David gets it. He gets up. And the scripture says that he freshens himself up. He anoints himself. And I believe now with a new revelation, a new appreciation of where he stood, fighting for his past. Denying his future. 
So he gets up and he goes to his room and he, and he, he freshens himself up. And I believe now with a brand new attitude, with a brand new revelation, he goes and he's getting ready to go worship the Lord. And, and it's not more than, hey, I got to, you know, it's Sunday, I got to get up. He has, an, he has a different revelation of why he's getting ready to go worship the Lord. Because he understands where he found himself and now that he is the one that's about to enter into the congregation of the righteous that has been denied for so many generations. He's about to ruin that. He's, he's about to threaten the fact that not only him, but the generations after him are now going to be able to enter into the congregations of the righteous. Stand with me. He gets up and he, he goes into that same room where he found himself getting in trouble. And he, and he watched himself and I believe that he looked out that window. That same window that got him in trouble, he begins to shout as he coins Psalms 22 and 1 when he says, I was glad. See, that word is defined in the Hebrew. That word means I don't care who hears me. I don't care what's going on around me. It is a defined word that says, I am glad. I, it, I am glad because I was once lost, but now I'm found glad. It is, I, I was one blind, but now I can see glad. I couldn't get into the congregation of the righteous, but now I am glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. My past is dead. The curse is over. I have access to the congregation of the righteous. Oh, I'm speaking to some Davids today who are trying to hold on to that past who are flirting with something that should be dead. You need to slay your giant. Don't just lead them lying there. You need to cut off that head of that sin. Your past needs to be dead. You must get a desperate understanding of what holding on to your past means to your future. Flirting with things that can prevent you from entering into the future that God has for you today. Don't fight God on this. God wants you to be part of the congregation of the righteous. He wants you to enter into the house of the Lord, His presence, not just here, but in eternity. Something must die. Let it be everything that keeps you from God. Something must die. Let it be you what remains standing before God in worship and in praise, declaring that your past is dead. So this is it. It is your time. Where do you stand this Sunday, June the 2nd? There's only one way for me to stand. There's only one thing for me to declare. There's only one thing for me to do to get to the future that God has set for me. I must declare my past to be dead. I must declare my past to be dead. God in his infinite wisdom, he saw the death grip our past had on us. And so he came and he robed himself in flesh. He came so that he can take that death that we deserve on himself so that we could have access to the congregation of the righteous. You must decide. Let your past be dead. I'm opening the altars right now. Where do you stand? Are you ready to declare your past to be dead? It wants you back. It's fighting to have you back. 
David loved the soul enough to finally say, God, not my will, but yours be done. I am breaking the curse today, God, and I am declaring my past is dead. Your past is not in your future, brothers and sisters. And your future does not have your past in it. There are blessings right now that are keeping you from, from connecting with them. Because you have not, you have not decided once and for all that your past is dead. So would you come and would you pray? Would you pray for someone? Would you, would you come and redeclare that your past is dead before God today? Hallelujah, Jesus. I must do what I need to do. I must do what I need to do. If you have never repented, if you have not been baptized in the name of Jesus, if you have not been filled with the Spirit of God, come today and declare your past to be dead so that you too can stand into the congregation of the righteous, so that you too can come. To the next time you come and declare with boldness, I was glad. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Hallelujah.